Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bully. gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of Mark, the first chapter. Speaking of Jesus and the disciples, they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, 
What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed, they asked each other, What's this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Today we're going to be speaking of spirits and of knowledge and of wisdom. man came to our church in the Atlanta suburbs and he spoke. He was a college pastor at the University of Georgia and he told us a story. He told us of a young man at the university. The young man had been a relatively normal kid in high school who went away to college. When he returned for the summer, he had nightmares, and his sleep was completely turned around. He played strange music at odd hours and burnt incense in his room. And when his parents visited him in his room, he painted the room black. He also painted a red pentagram on his floor. Our friend was in the waiting room at the hospital talking to mother and father after the young man had attempted suicide. And the mother asked our speaker, do you think he's been involved in the occult? And the answer quite clearly was yes. The boy had gained some knowledge of the occult, but he didn't have the wisdom to leave it alone. Around the same time, a missionary came to our church also, and he sat in our dining room at the dining room table telling of his time in Haiti. He told us of men and women who had every sign of possession by evil spirits. He told us of the trances into which the people had fallen. And he told us that he was now a strong believer in the differences between epilepsy and spirit possession. And he did this while otherwise speaking and interacting with us in a normal way. For you see, he had both the knowledge of demonic possession and the wisdom to warn about it and depend upon the power of Jesus rather than be enticed by the powers of darkness. The great Oxford professor and defender of Christianity, C.S. Lewis, wrote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. He wrote this in his preface to the Screwtape Letters. It was a series of radio talks that he gave on the BBC during World War II, which was later collected into a book. And the book, the book is put forth as allegedly a series of letters from a senior demon to his nephew, instructing him how to lead the young man in his charge away from Christianity and down the road to hell. Of course, it's all tongue-in-cheek. It's very enlightening in exposing the tricks used by the forces of evil to keep us from Christ is full of both knowledge and wisdom. That's the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I urge you to look at reading it. 
At first glance, the Bible offers us two separate and contradictory views of the spiritual world around us. The first view is that the Christian and Jewish God that's sometimes known as Yahweh is the only God. And the second view is that devils and evil spirits exist and can be a danger to men and women. So how do we reconcile these two different views? Well, we gain some knowledge and then apply our God-given wisdom and we start with Scripture. A plain reading of the New Testament Gospels shows us that Jesus ran into men and women possessed by evil spirits. One example is in our reading from Mark, Mark 1, 21 through 28. Jesus and his disciples had gone to Capernaum just after the calling of Peter and Andrew, James and John. Now Capernaum was a small fishing village of some 1,500 people on the northwest shore of the Lake of Galilee. Since it was Saturday morning and it was time for Sabbath worship, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Mark, who gets much of his information from Simon Peter, tells us that the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law, sometimes known as the scribes, they were well known for their method of teaching. They would make a statement about the meaning of some verse in the law given to the people by God through Moses. And then they would also give the various ideas about that verse from various other teachers. And at the end of it, you'd never really know where the teacher stood. But Jesus was teaching as one who had authority. He would say, this is the truth. Or, you've heard such and such, but I say, and then teach with authority. He could teach with authority because he not only had the knowledge of Scripture, but he had the wisdom to understand it and its true meaning. Something that is dangerous to all the evil powers in the world. And in the middle of this teaching, a possessed man, the spirit within him had had enough, and he cries out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And by us, of course, the man was referring to the spirit or spirits within him. Be quiet, Jesus said. Come out of him. And the evil or impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. That must have been some worship service, you know. According to Mark, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what's this, a new teaching, and with authority, and he even gives orders to the impure spirits, and they obey him. News about Jesus spread quickly over the whole region of, the, of Galilee because of what happened that morning. Now Moses, centuries before, had warned the people to be wary of anyone who claimed to be a prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And this is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. You see, the people were frightened of God's presence on the mountain. Many people today are still frightened of God's presence. If you notice in almost any church, the seats that fill quickest are the seats farthest 
from the altar. In almost any church, there are many people who do not want to approach the altar, even during altar calls. And there's many reasons that people give for this, but when people think carefully about it, it's usually because they have a deep ancestral fear of being close to the Holy One. Many people don't feel that they're good enough to approach the location in the sanctuary where deep down in our hearts we believe God dwells, right up here. We're afraid to approach God with our physical self and even in our prayers because we're all so deeply aware of our sins and shame and guilt. We have the knowledge of good and evil from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and, of good and evil that Adam and Eve ate in the garden. And using that knowledge, we find it very, very hard to believe that God accepts us as we are and loves us, but wants, us, wants to lead us to change for the better, which is the wisdom given to us by listening to the Holy Spirit as well as reading and studying deeply the Word of God. We go back to that fear so much and we forget that God is speaking to us saying, I love you. I want you to be better than you are, but I love you as you are. Moses told people about God's decision about their request that God not show himself or speak to them directly when they were in the desert. Moses said, the Lord said to me, what you say is good. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I'll put my words in his mouth. He'll tell them everything I have commanded him. And I myself will call to account anyone who doesn't listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. I'll call them to account. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything that I've not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. Now I want you to notice three things here. First of all, God will send us prophets to speak on behalf of God. And second, we're to listen to God's prophets or else. Third, so that people will not fake prophecies, God says that false prophets who make up things or prophets who speak in the name of other gods are to be put to death. And so those men and women who spoke mainly in the Old Testament and started their talk with, God said for me to tell you, well, they were very brave. For few who spoke these words dared to make up things for fear of punishment by the people or by God. And there have always been those who have spoken on behalf of other gods and spirits, though. Even today, there are those who speak on behalf of other gods and spirits. They have little knowledge. I mean, they have knowledge, but they have little wisdom. So were these gods and spirits real? Well, the answer partially depends on what you mean by God. So let's look at the reality of the time of the Bible. Let's gain some knowledge about the ancient gods. There were many so-called gods in the ancient world. Most of them had a temple in which there was a statue of the god. The Parthenon in Athens, in Athens, Greece, they had a large statue of Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom. And in Rome, there was a temple to Jupiter where the Romans worshipped this huge statue of the thunder god. 
in the Greek city of Ephesus in what's today western Turkey. There was a temple with a statue of Artemis, whom the Romans called Diana. And in what is today the Gaza Strip, there was actually a temple with a statue of Dagon, the fish god worshipped by the Philistines. Many people traveled hundreds of miles to these temples to worship and also partly to admire the beauty of the temples. Their money contributed to the temples and supported the economies of the towns and the priests who served in the temples. The temple of Artemis was so beautiful that Paul, the apostle Paul, was almost killed in a riot by the silversmiths of Ephesus. You see, Paul had been preaching about how only the true God was a real God, and sales of the replica temples and the replica statues made by the silversmiths, those sales had declined dramatically. So they came after Paul. Well, both Jewish and Christian viewpoints were that these so-called gods were nothing more than statues made by human hands. And the cults which donated money and food and off other offerings to these temples and statues were just money-making scams operated by the priests, often with a wink by the local authorities who liked the revenue that was coming into the town. The statues were called idols, carvings worshipped but with no real power. This was the wisdom given by God to God's people so that they would avoid danger. With many people, their worship of the idols was similar to the way many people today fall in love with little figures of angels or kittens or dragons or Marvel action figures or the Mothman, except there was real devotion to the ancient cults. They became obsessed with the idols and considered them sacred. Some people still do this today. The city of Corinth in Greece was a crossroads city. It was located at the intersection of the highways that ran between Upper and Lower Greece and a narrow passage for ships going east and west. The ships were put on rollers and carried the four miles from the Gulf of Corinth on the west to the Saronic Gulf on the east side. And because fees were charged and tourists from the ships got off and spent money in town, the city was very prosperous with 90,000 people from all over the Mediterranean. Since there were people from everywhere, this great diversity of population, there were also many temples, including a temple of Apollo and a temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, where several thousand prostitutes worked for the temple. Because of all these temples, most of the food, especially the meat, which was sold on the open market, had first been donated and offered to one of the temples and the idols within it. Well, the temples then turned around and sold the food, mainly meat, in the marketplace. And so there was a question that the Corinthians asked Paul, who had previously established a dynamic and growing church in the city, could Christians eat the food that had been offered to idols? One group, the group who understood things more deeply, they said, yes, of course we can eat, for the idols are simply meaningless statues. These so-called gods are not real gods, but simply the work of human hands, and so it really doesn't make any difference. This group of people had the most knowledge. 
But a second group said, no, it's been known for centuries that Jews don't eat food offered to idols because that supports these temples. And the Christians of the day were mostly Jewish. They had the knowledge of their parents and grandparents, but those parents and grandparents weren't necessarily Christian. Well, Paul agreed with both sides. Here's what his wise decision was. We know that idols are simply statues carved by men. And we understand that there's only one God in the universe. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, eating the food causes them great pain and guilt. So be careful that the exercise of your rights doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to also eat what is sacrificed to idols? And so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died just like you is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Paul's wisdom, you see, was to look outside himself and think wisely about how his actions would affect others, and he encouraged us to do the same. Today, much the same argument can be used to demonstrate that Christians should not drink or smoke or gamble or use illegal drugs or, and the list, the list just goes on. It isn't because doing one of these things is an unforgivable sin. It's not going to send us to hell because we can ask for forgiveness. After all, Jesus made wine and only wine was used for communion for 1800 years. But we don't do these things because if we, when we do such things and are seen by weak Christians or new Christians or those considering Christianity who don't fully understand these things, then we'll be seen as immoral hypocrites and thus drive people away from Christ, Christianity. And that's never wise. It's possible for us to have so much knowledge and pride in what we know that we become arrogant, hurt people, and prevent them from coming to Christ. Always remember, too much knowledge at once can suffocate a soul. Instead, the wise person understands that knowledge needs to be gradually fed to a new Christian so it can be digested. You know, a handful of peanuts can choke a person, but a person who eats the peanuts one by one can eat an entire bag. And so it is with such things as the question of gods and idols and evil spirits and such. For the question comes up, if the idols are just statues and they aren't really gods, then what about the stories of evil spirits in the Bible? What about mediums and palm reading and such? Well, it's clear from both the New and the Old Testament that evil spirits exist, but they are not gods if you consider that gods have an independence of action, the ability to operate more or less without constraint. 
In the ancient stories, the gods were free to do whatever they wanted, although occasionally they would be punished by a stronger god. But you see, one of the rock-solid ideas behind both the Old and the New Testament is that there is only one God. So take this story from Revelation 12, which helps explain who the evil spirits are. And you can find more information also in Isaiah 14. At some time before Adam, there was a war in heaven. Lucifer, the angel of light, or literally the morning star, which his name means, he rebelled against the idea that men would be created and eventually have power greater than the angels. So he led a third of the angels to join him in his struggle, but was defeated and kicked out of heaven by God and the angels loyal to God, led by the angel Michael. Lucifer, the angel of light, became Satan, the great deceiver. And then the lesser angels became the demons, and many of them became the evil spirits who possessed the souls of men and women. And they are under the influence of Satan. But they also exist simply because God has allowed them to exist up to now to give them time to change their minds about Jesus and humans. For God has immense patience and eternal time to accomplish God's plan. In the end, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. But today, God is giving them, a, even the evil spirits, a chance to change their mind and come back to worship Jesus. As Christian believers, we're truly immune to the actions of the evil spirits and stronger than those that we encounter if we hold on to our faith. While it's obvious that Jesus could expel evil spirits and demons from people, after all, he was son of God, we need to also look to the book of Acts, chapter 16, where the very human man, Paul, tosses a demon out of a girl. A strong faith in Jesus can work miracles against evil spirits. But we need to have a strong faith in Jesus, as shown by a story in Acts 19, where there were some men who did not have the faith but only used the name of Jesus in an attempted exorcism. One of them said, in the name of of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And the Spirit answered him, Jesus I know, and I'm familiar with Paul, but who are you? And then the possessed man proceeded to beat up the man and his six brothers who were present. The men had the knowledge of the power of Jesus, but not the wisdom to believe in him. So learn these things. Do not reject knowledge, but be careful how you use such knowledge. For intense amounts of knowledge delivered to a person can drive them away from you and Christ. For we are called to go beyond knowledge, to be with those, to be those who have wisdom. Wisdom is more important than knowledge. Do you want to be successful in leading people to Christ? You'll need to show these three things. First of all, you must genuinely show agape love for the person, selfless love, that it's only concerned with the good for the other person. This requires knowledge of the life of the other person and wisdom to use that knowledge for their good. Second of all, you must be nice and attractive and sane in your behavior. 
And this also requires wisdom to control our behavior and our speech so that we remain attractive and nice and sane to others. And third, you must show that you have wisdom, which is often the understanding of what to say and what not to say. Knowledge makes us arrogant, but wisdom makes us humble. And wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord and an understanding of all that He can heal. So come to the altar and pray for wisdom. United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Boley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.